We'll go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 45, if you haven't done so already. If you're just joining us this week, in our Advent season uh, this year, I'll be just going right through uh, several passages in the book of Luke as we get a sense of the narrative that Luke tells us about the birth of Jesus, about his beginning, as he tells the story, as other gospel writers do, of the sort of once upon a time, as they begin to story, tell the story about Jesus, Luke begins with these unique birth narratives. Narratives, plural, because he tells us about John the Baptist, as well as uh, the birth of Jesus and the connection between those two. But Luke 1, 39 through 45, I titled this message this morning, Faith That Does Big Things. I'm going to ask you if you're able to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word as we just give attention to His voice and reverence to His authority. Listen to the Word of the Lord. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, Father, we do love your word. We thank you so much, God, that in a dark, crazy, sometimes confusing and wicked world, Lord, that in, in that space you have spoken and not left us wandering around, wondering what's true, what's good, how we ought to live, what we ought to do, and whom we ought to worship, Lord. You've, you've not left that to our imaginations, but you've spoken and you've spoken clearly. And so we open your word now, as always, with expectation that you have something to say to us in it. So we open our ears, our hearts to receive, and ask that you would speak, O Lord, your word by your spirit, through your servant, to your people, for your glory. Lord, would you move me out of the way and somehow use my voice to communicate your message to your people today. In Christ's name, amen. amen. You may be seated. Well, Mary, in, in most respects, was an ordinary young woman. Uh, young indeed, uh, we read last week she was betrothed to Joseph, and historians would tell us that typically betrothal would occur between the ages of 12 and 14, and then there would be a preparation period before the actual uh, marriage um, 
took place and the, and the couple moved in together, but uh, she was a very young woman, almost certainly. But ordinary as well. And I would, I would just say, sort of parenthetically here, um, that in contrast to some of what's taught in other uh, uh, expressions of Christianity, particularly in the Roman Catholic Church, where there's the teaching of uh, that Mary was immaculately conceived and kept from sin, that she was perpetually a virgin, that she was assumed into heaven and didn't actually experience death, uh, we would say those, those things aren't taught in the scripture about Mary. In fact, weren't even taught in Christian history until about 500 years after uh, the death and resurrection of Christ. And so we wouldn't affirm that those things were true of Mary, and yet... She was chosen for a very extraordinary purpose. So an ordinary young woman in lots of ways, chosen for one of the biggest assignments that God has ever given to a human being. Perhaps we ought to say chosen for the biggest assignment that God has ever assigned to a human being. Because she carried, birthed, nurtured, and raised the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Salvation literally came to the world through her. Right? Because Jesus came literally through her, in case you're, you know, uh, unless all the pistons aren't firing this morning, just want to be sure I'm connecting the dots. But she did, she did a really big thing in her life. Not, meaning not that she brought it about or caused it to be so, but she participated in this extraordinarily historic great work that God did on the earth. She participated in that, and that required faith on her part. Great faith, I would say. And there's so many things that we could, so many sort of angles we could take on this passage. And I don't know if you've got a sense of that even as we're reading it. As you read over that, and then as you go back and read through it again, you find out there's a lot said here that you, would, you might want to peel back the layers on and unpack some. I want to look this morning at that faith that Mary had and exercised here, and what we see and learn about faith that does big things. What, what, it, what it looks like to have faith that does big things, participates in the big works of God on the earth. And so I want to look at the fact that faith that, that does big things begins first with a demonstration uh, then meets with confirmation, and then finally receives commendation. The sequence of that is particularly noteworthy in my mind this morning, and hopefully I can uh, transfer that to your mind as well. That's always the ambition, that what's in my head ends up in your head by the grace of God. Well, you remember from last week, before we unpack that outline as I just offered it, the angel Gabriel had appeared to Mary. In fact, he's made two appearances in the opening chapters of Luke. We've only read about one of them, but if we did the background reading, we would see 
uh, and read about the other. The first visit was to Zechariah, announcing that his wife Elizabeth would become pregnant, even though she was old and past childbearing years. And in her childbearing years, she had never been able to bear a child. She was old and barren. That was the first announcement from an angel. The second was to Mary, announcing that she would conceive and bore, uh, bear a son by the Holy Spirit, and he would be the promised Messiah, the one who would sit on the throne of David forever. And as evidence that God can and will do the impossible, when the, when the angel told that to Mary, he also said, and by the way, your relative Elizabeth, who is old and past childbearing years, is pregnant. She's six months pregnant, in fact. That's kind of how the angel ended the message to Mary. And so, in this, in verse 39, as we pick up, we, we read that Mary goes on a trip. I thought about entitling this message, Have Faith, Will Travel. Because it really is in the traveling that, um, that, 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 that she models for us and communicates to us some things that are really uh, important for us to understand about faith. But as she makes that trip, uh, we begin to see the outworkings of and the sequence of this faith that does big things. And as I said, it first comes with a demonstration. You see in verse 39, it says, In those days Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country, to a town in Judah. We don't know how far that was away. It's pretty imprecise, that description of it. Um, but I've read, you know, anywhere from 50 to 100 miles, but it was some distance away. It was probably a multi-day trip that it took. And we read at the end of the next passage, down around verse 56, she stayed there for three months. This is not just an overnighter or even just a, a there and back one day to Cousin Elizabeth's house. This is uh, quite a commitment on her part and presumably on the part of her parents. There are lots of things when I read that story, lots of things I wish I knew or I wish I could ask about how exactly did that go? How did that conversation go with mom and dad about, hey, I'm going to go see Elizabeth? I, I don't know, but either way, it was a it, it, was, it was a trip of quite some distance, but she arose and went with haste, it says. And those are really the words that we want to key in on. Because the authenticity of faith, the fact that it's real faith, it's validated through action, not just through testimony. Uh, it, it, is, it is very, very often easy and cheap just to say, I believe. Cheap in the sense that it doesn't cost anything. It doesn't, it doesn't in, in many cases, doesn't take any kind of risk. It doesn't cost you anything. You don't have to sacrifice anything to say, I believe. But to act upon that belief very often becomes costly and risky. I should mention too, acknowledge the fact that there are plenty of places in the world where it is very risky and very costly to even say, I believe. 
For that to be public and that to be acknowledged even to family members, there's a lot at stake there, and I don't want to minimize that, but I I, I think you probably understand the point that I'm making and the contrast there. The authenticity of faith is validated by action that demonstrates I really believe what I'm saying I believe. And, and, And Mary does that. She believes the word that the angels communicated to her, and so she arises and goes with haste to see Elizabeth is six months pregnant. You know, there is an excitement that comes from knowing that you've received a clear word of direction from the Lord. Even if he has said something scary, I don't know how many of you could attest to that fact today where somewhere along the way in your journey of faith, God just made it clear to you, here's the decision you need to make, here's the action you need to take. And it just, it was clear that you were getting a word of direction from the Lord, maybe because you got it multiple different times from multiple different sources, and he just sort of hammered this home for you, and you knew you'd heard from the Lord. And there's something exciting about that, even if what he said is scary. Is there anybody who can say amen to that? Amen. I know, thanks, some of you just said it just to, to, just to participate, probably, I know, thanks for not throwing me under the bus there, but, but, uh, but, but, but I suspect many of you have had that sort of experience where you know, okay, the God is up to something, and that's exciting to know with confidence that I'm not just uh, in a holding pattern, you know, circling around, But that God is doing something and he's called me into it. There's an excitement about that. And I think that's some of what you you almost see in, in Mary's response. She arose and went with haste to see. Even if he's introduced new uncertainties to our life. I remember hearing Brian Slater talk about the decision to become a part of Timothy 2 and go to the mission field. I hope I don't misrepresent uh, Brian's testimony here, but Brian, you can just nod if I do. And, uh, but just, he was pastoring a church and he, and he just said, God made it very clear to him that he was to go become a missionary with Timothy too. God made it very clear. That's the, the point I'm trying to underscore here. Now there's probably lots of other things he didn't make clear at that point, right? At the very beginning, there were lots of things that weren't yet clear, but he made clear, this is what I would have you to do. And there is just an excitement that comes from that. And there's a special kind of peace that comes from acting upon the word of God that's been made clear. Again, peace, even in the midst of a whole new set of uncertainties. I don't have any idea how this is going to work. In fact, from all I can see, I'm pretty sure it's not going to. But God, I mean, unless God shows up, right? It's that sort of thing. There might be all kinds of uncertainties. And yet there's a peace from acting upon a clear word from the Lord because you know he's in it. It's an obedient 
sort of faith. In fact, the, the scripture elsewhere talks about the, the obedience of faith. But an obedient faith that is responsive in that way and, and in acts upon the word respects God's authority. That is, uh, number one, God has the right to issue this call and command. So when I, when I say yes to it, it's an acknowledgement and a respect for his authority. I say again, it's the reason we stand when we read the Bible because he speaks with authority in every jot and tittle of it. And it is not just ceremonial that we would stand and say, hear the word of the Lord, but that we would stand out of reverence for him to say, whatever he says, however clear it is in its application to me, the answer must be, yes, Lord. Because he has the authority to issue that call and command. And that's why a faith demonstrates itself and obeys. An obedient faith also acknowledges the truth of everything that God says. He not only has the authority to command it, but that what he has said is true. And then finally, an obedient faith affirms the goodness of everything that God does. If God God has communicated to me clearly, in other words, this is what you are to do. He, He has the authority to say so. It's true what he has spoken, and it is good. It is good. Even even if I do not know what's behind the curtain, I say yes, and I start moving forward in faith, and I don't know what is behind the next door because he hasn't opened it yet. But what I can be sure of is that it's good because he is good and he is God. So the first aspect of, the first characteristic of a faith that does big things is demonstration. It is demonstrated. There's action put to it. Then follows confirmation. Beginning in verse 41 uh, down through 44, you see really the, the strongest confirmation that Mary gets about the angel's word to her comes after she has made her way to the hill country to Elizabeth's house. And that is typically the case for you and me. The strongest confirmation usually comes after we have acted upon our faith, not before. We don't go asking when God says go. We don't go asking for a second opinion. Where are you going to get one that matters? Right? And we don't say... Uh, yes, Lord, I believe. I just need a couple of more artifacts of evidence so that I'll really know, be sure. I don't want to do anything careless, you know. So just give me a little bit more proof. No, 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 no. Confirmation almost always comes after we have demonstrated our faith in some significant way. We've acted upon it. Here, Mary receives more confirmation than she would have expected, I'm quite sure. She went there 
expecting that presumably this she went there just expecting to see a six-month pregnant old woman and that's confirmation enough the angel said it there it is right thank you lord she got more than she bargained for so to speak because she went in and elizabeth offers this holy spirit inspired message to her it's really a prophetic sort of word. She's filled with the Holy Spirit, and she says things to her that are almost paraphrases of what the angel says to her. If you look in verse 42 in particular, blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Your child is my Lord. Did you catch that when we were reading? She calls this baby, we, it, it didn't even said explicit that Mary has conceived immediately after that, but, but, but nonetheless, she speaks of this baby in Mary's womb as my Lord. I mean, that's, that's, that's language that suggests deity. Lord being a, a title ascribed to God himself. So, wow, the confirmation Mary got that she didn't even go shopping for, right? That the fact that Elizabeth would know this, which she could only know by the Holy Spirit, or if angel Gabriel, you know, made a visit to her before, she got there. But throughout the Bible, we repeatedly see this pattern of confirmation following a demonstration of faith. The confirmation follows the demonstration. It's somewhere downstream. God speaks, it's clear, we say yes and act upon it, and then, later, comes the confirmation. Again, there are, there are multiple examples of that. I think of one in particular um, is in the ministry of Philip in Acts chapter 8. You may remember the story of the church having been scattered out of Jerusalem and ended up in Samaria doing ministry. And it's, it's, it's hopping in, in Samaria. Ministry's going well for Philip in Samaria. There are miracles being done, people being healed, demons being cast out. I mean, just amazing stuff going on. And an angel appears to Philip and says, Arise and go down to the road that leads from Jerusalem to Gaza, out in the desert. In the midst of a booming, fruitful, miraculous ministry, arise and go. So what did Philip do? Arose and went. And you remember the story, of course, he meets out there in the desert, an Ethiopian eunuch, on his way from Jerusalem back to Ethiopia. He shares the gospel with him. He becomes a believer in Christ and takes the gospel back to Ethiopia with him. We don't know anymore. We don't have other biblical accounts anyway of what resulted from that. But what we do know is Philip had no idea there was going to be anything out in the desert except sand and heat. 
He said, yes, and he went, and the confirmation came. But the intersection of, uh, of the journey of this Ethiopian eunuch. We have to uh, believe first and understand later. Uh, Augustine said as much, and that it was language picked up by another uh, biblical or, or, or Christian scholar and monk later, centuries later, named Anselm. But he, he basically said, believe, Augustine said, believe so that you may understand. Believe so that you may understand. It's fine to seek to understand what we don't understand, right? It's fine to seek clarity on things that are unclear. It's fine to seek a greater measure of certainty for things that are so terribly uncertain. But we believe, then seek understanding. We don't demand understanding first to decide whether or not we're going to believe. You understand the difference? Say amen if you do. Thank you. Even if you don't, thanks for playing along once again. Faith that does big, first, big things first comes with demonstration, then confirmation, and then finally, in Mary's case, was the commendation. That is, she's commended for her faith. I think that's especially noteworthy in this passage, what we see in verse 45 where Elizabeth says, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Again, this is by the Holy Spirit that, that Elizabeth even knows this. But Mary came to visit because she believed there'd be a fulfillment of what Gabriel had said to her. It's hard to overlook the contrast here between Mary's belief and Zechariah's unbelief. Again, if you're familiar with the story, you may know what I'm speaking of. We didn't, uh, I didn't preach from the passage about Zechariah this year, so it might not be uh, quite as fresh in your memory. But an angel had appeared to Zechariah while he's on duty in the temple. He says, your wife, Elizabeth, who he knows is old and barren, she's going to get pregnant. And Zechariah questioned the angel. And again, what's interesting, if you've read this, you know, his question doesn't sound all that different from Mary's question. Do you remember that? Mary said, how will this be since I'm a virgin? When, when Gabriel spoke to Zechariah, he said, how will I know this? But the angel knew and God knew there was unbelief behind the question. And the result was he was struck with silence. He couldn't speak until that son was born. And, he, and, and his first words that he spoke were, or first word that he spoke was John. His name is John. He knew the angel had told him that was going to be his name. He wanted to be sure when he finally was able to utter anything. <laughs> it was a word that, that, that essentially expressed, I believe the angel.
But he asked, how will I know this? And I, and I think that, that maybe is some insight into the different nature of his question than Elizabeth's. He wanted to know so that he could decide whether or not to believe. He wanted to know more than the angel had revealed. How, how will I know this? Well, I mean, if you just wait, you'll know because she'll get pregnant. But, but you know, he's, he's, he knows that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't happen. The old barren women get pregnant. So make sense of this for me so I'll know whether or not I can go along with it. That's essentially what he's asking. And again, he he's experiences some hardship because of his unbelief. Mary was commended for her faith. She questioned. He answered, this will be uh, so because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come on you and overshadow you and so on. And so she said, so be it. Be it unto me according to your word. I'm the servant of the Lord. And then she arose and went to witness the confirmation of it. There are a couple of things that are striking uh, to me about this and I think really quite intentional and revealing about these opening chapters of Luke and the accounts, these birth narratives that he tells. And, and, and number one, the first of those is that the first two models of faith that Luke sets before us are two women. And this, this doesn't strike us as anything uh, so extraordinary in our day, but in the first century, um, you, you know, women just didn't have a place of prominence really kind of in any sector or influence in that kind of thing. Christianity indeed elevated the status of women, no doubt about it. Uh, it did not give us feminism as we know it. It didn't strip away all the distinctions between uh, male and female and so on and so forth and a lot of the stuff we deal with in our day. But it did elevate the status of women and that didn't, that didn't strengthen the case for Christianity in the early, in the early years. For them to tell the story that some of the first really faith-filled followers were women, and some of the first people who witnessed and testified to his resurrection were women. That didn't strengthen the case for them. But it was true, and Luke reports it that way. That's one of the things that's just striking to me. But really, I think the other that's maybe more pertinent to the message this morning is that the young girl has a greater faith than the old priest. The, this young, uneducated, essentially peasant girl has a greater faith than the old man who's walked in the faith for a long time. By the way, a godly and righteous man, Luke speaks very uh, uh, admiringly, if you will, or honoring of both Zechariah and Elizabeth. A genuine man of faith and a priest who is on duty at the time the angel speaks to him. It seems like being in the temple in service 
would be a pretty opportune time to expect to encounter the Lord and to listen to Him. But it's just, it's just interesting. It's more than interesting. I think it, it reveals something, uh, maybe subtly, maybe not so subtly, that's important for us to observe. That the young girl has a greater faith than the old priest. And one of the things it suggests, or one of the things I guess it, it uh, in, our, in our own experience that would affirm that or attest to that observation is that as we get older, it seems we are prone to increase in wisdom and decrease in faith. As we get older, we grow in wisdom and decrease in faith. Faith being, again, this assurance of things not seen, right? Or assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things not seen. Saying yes because God said it. Must be true, must be good. He certainly has the authority to say so. Okay, let's do it. The older we get, the more wisdom we've attained. Maybe the, the older we get, the more times we've gotten it wrong. Right? Where we think we've heard from the Lord. We think we've done something that's obedient to the Lord and we find it, you know, wasn't so. We stumble in some way, we come to some dead end, whatever the case may be. In other words, we've We've accumulated a lot of data by the time we get older that would give us pause to say yes to the Lord. There's a challenge in that to us, and I'm going to issue it explicitly right here in just a minute. But, um, but again, I'm just sort of drawing out the contrast here that a girl who's somewhere around the age of 14-ish, let's say, is not so restrained by experience, wisdom, so-called, or the doubt that would come along with both of those things. In fact, we know that, at least in our culture, and I think the developmentally, sure, this has always been true, surely this has always been true to a certain extent, but uh, that teenager is just naturally going to be more impulsive than a fully mature adult. It is, is naturally going to, uh, they, they, they have a, a less developed uh, executive function, as it's called, in making those good judgments about making wise decisions, right? It's why teenagers do some things sometimes, and you go, what were you thinking? And you realize immediately that's a stupid question because he wasn't thinking at all. Thinking didn't go into it. Like, there was just, there was so much attractive about this. Why would you, anybody need to think through it, right? I, I ran across a story this week. Um, I, I don't think I remember reading this uh, anytime past it. Back in 1970, some of you may remember the news story. There was a boy, in, a 14-year-old boy in Australia who climbed into a commercial airplane up into the... Uh, Essentially, I don't know what you call it, sort of the wheel well, you know, where the landing gear was. It was a flight going to Japan. It seemed adventurous. 
exciting. And in flight, shortly after the flight took off, the, the landing gear uh, opened. Or I, I don't know exactly how that worked out because the landing gear should have already been open, right? But, but however, came, maybe this is before it landed. It opens up, the kid falls out of the plane to his death. It actually, uh, by no design on anybody's part, was actually caught on camera. Somebody was, was taking photos of the airplane and saw this happen. A 14-year-old making a decision that just seemed like, this seems fun. I mean, there's obviously some risk. He didn't calculate them all very well. Didn't even think about most of them. But he, but he took the risk. My point is just to illustrate, there are those kinds of stories to a lesser degree uh, in our own biography, right? When you were a teenager, when I was, and, and other people at that, uh, that age. But there's just something instructive for us, and it's why I'm leaning on it a little bit, that the older we get the less inclined we are to arise and go with haste when the Lord says go. The older we get, the more likely we are to say, how will I know? Well, wait a minute. I've got some follow-up questions. This sounds, good. sounds like a good starting point. It's a good idea. We'll just scratch down some thoughts here on the whiteboard here. Now let me ask you some follow-up questions. Gabriel? Because I want to know how this is going to work out. That is our inclination. The older we get, I'm certainly not speaking that over everybody as if that's true of you. I'm just making an observation. This generally is, tends to be true. That the, 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 a younger person has more faith and less wisdom. An older person has more wisdom and less faith. And so, as I conclude here, a few kind of reflective questions. When was the last time you took a risk by saying yes to God? When was the last time you said yes to God in a way that, that, that involved risk? There's, there was real cost to it. And you probably know in your story along the way, in the once upon a times of your own life, that there are some of those, you can remember, milestones in your faith where you took the risk and God showed up, right, with the confirmation. And you knew he was there. And it's part of your story and how he's led you in faith. When was the last time that you listened to God, that you sought to hear from God, that you sought direction from God, Received it clearly and took a risk. You, you, you might have found yourself saying, I don't know what's next or how it's going to work out, but I'm going to trust God. When, when was the last time in your life? Maybe there are some, even right now, who are contemplating such a decision and finding it maybe a little more challenging to say yes and to take the risk and to pay the price, as it were. There could be somebody in here or somebody in circles that you know, in retirement or approaching retirement, who senses a call to missions work. It wouldn't be the first by any stretch of the imagination. 
people who are called to the mission field in retirement. I can remember um, a couple somewhere around 80 years old, the EPC being, being commissioned to go out on the mission field or going again. They had been missionaries. They retired and they were going again. There could be somebody, though, contemplating that sort of decision. It's a big decision. There's a lot that comes with it and a lot of uncertainty that's maybe mind-boggling and, and you find yourself even unable to think very far down the road because it becomes overwhelming. But the challenge is to hear clearly from the Lord. And then the answer is yes. The task is not to sort out all the details and all the uncertainties, right? It is to say, Lord, say it again. <laughs> Would you confirm it through the mouth of somebody else? I want, I want to know I'm hearing from you. That's quite reasonable to say. Very often, the best, uh, the best place we can turn for that sort of clarity is to the Scripture itself, with the particular prayer that we bring, the particular thing we would ask of God to give direction or clarity on, that, we, that we're praying about that and reading the scriptures, looking for a word right out, of, right out of the Psalms or right out of Proverbs or right out of the New Testament that would, would just, our, our eyes would, would light upon that and we would, we would just hear in our heart some little word of affirmation, we would just get a sense of yes from the Lord. This is what he's saying. But you seek the clarity that you're hearing from him. And then the answer is yes, in spite of the fact that you don't have clarity on now a hundred new things that lie beyond that. There could be other decisions like that. There may be a couple uh, contemplating adoption or fostering a child. That's a big decision with lots of cost, if you will, uh, maybe literally, but some consequence and risk to it. Maybe there are some who just in the most basic way today need to say yes to following Jesus. That you're here today and you have never accepted his lordship of your own life. You've never just said yes to Jesus. What the Bible says about him is true. He is who the Bible says he is. He's done what the Bible says he's done. He is Lord, and I want him to be my Lord. I'm going to say yes to Jesus and follow him and obey him. That might be the decision you need to, to make today. Because surely there is something about that faith decision that has to be demonstrated, isn't there now? I mean, there, uh, th that does mean making major changes in some cases to the way you live. And you know that, that to follow Jesus means you've got to change the way you live, change the way you talk, maybe, change, uh, in some cases, the nature of relationships that you have with friends and family. You know that it's a costly decision. But I can assure you about that one. It's the right one. 
I don't know whether you ought to go be a missionary or whether you ought to adopt a child or foster a child. I know you ought to say yes to Jesus. I'm 100% confident of that one. But it's a faith that'll do big things because it makes us partners with God who's about doing big things, but it requires first a demonstration, then the confirmation, and then perhaps now a commendation on this, on this earth, or maybe it's when we meet the Lord after our death and he says, well done, good and faithful service. That's a commendation uh, that will suffice. Amen? Let's pray together. Well, God, we just quiet our hearts before you. We praise you, Lord, because you are great. You do great things. You have done great things, are doing great things, will do great things. And we thank you, Lord, that you've made us a part of that story by your grace, that when we were lost, you found us, and when we were far off, you brought us near. When we were aliens and strangers and enemies, you adopted us and made us children of your very own. Thank you for all of that. And Lord, we do want to renew our faith. A a faith that acts. A faith that arises and goes with haste and just does what you are doing and what you've called us to do. We want to have a renewed faith, a living faith, active and dynamic, demonstrated faith. Lord, would you stir that in us today and awaken us to just a fresh new season of faith-filled living. Lord, I pray if there are those who have just kind of circled the camp for some time, so to speak, and they've been watching, listening, considering whether or not to be a part of the family of God and whether or not to say yes to Jesus in a decisive, life-altering way, in ways that are wonderful beyond expectation or imagination. Lord, for that one or those ones, Would you lead them to the yes today? And whatever uh, else our hearts need to hear and how we need to respond, God, would you have your way with us? For Christ's sake, amen.